Hi, I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses. Uh, my guest today is a fiercely talented actress and playwright. She has appeared on Broadway, off-Broadway, television and film. And most recently, you might recognize her as Tina in the hit FX series, The Bear. The fabulous Liza Colon-Zayas. Welcome. go back. We do. We do. Well, it's the New York thing. Everybody ba banging around New York, trying to make a living, doing theater, doing TV, and everybody's paths keep crossing, you know? Mm -hmm. so. But I remember, like, the first time I met you. Do you uh -oh. remember that? Was I sober? <laughs> <laughs> Was I? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, man, I I had um, auditioned for the uh, uh, uh for that show that my husband did. He did so many. It's all a blur. And you guys were so kind and you were so funny. And I thank you. Are you talking of, oh, St. George? or St. George. St. George. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That was a long time. You were very sweet. Oh, okay. You. So I didn't yell at you or throw books? You didn't. Or... You didn't. You were, you know, it's it's, it's so, you know, New York is, uh, is one kind of environment when you audition and LA is was just a whole other creature and it was yeah. it was so nice how to have somebody who felt like they were rooting for you in the room well I do that I really do I, I when I, I write about this that when actors walk in the room you know as they're mm -hmm. taking their I usually say a little prayer over them because I've been on the other side and I know how weird that can feel mm -hmm. and so I just kind of send them good energy and a little private prayer saying let them do their best. Let them relax. It's okay. And uh, I think actors, being sensitive creatures, usually feel that when they walk in the room. Yes, you have very powerful prayer hands. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> well, I have to talk about The Bear because it's one of my favorite new shows, and it's a hit, and you're in it. And everyone talks about the energy of that show, the pace, and how the viewer is feels pulled into that restaurant and a part of that. So tell me about that. How did you prepare for that? Did you have to take classes? Or did you culinary classes okay, or what? Okay, so um, the first time I, I got I got cast off a self-tape. You did? Yeah. And then, um, and apparently I got... And for, for the listeners who don't know what a self-tape is, would you explain what that is? Yeah, you know, during COVID, um, you know, there you, you couldn't go into a, a casting office. So... Everybody had to learn how to set up a camera and videotape your audition and send it in. And, you know, I mean, numbers just came out a couple of days ago that 99% of the time people don't watch them. And I was, I didn't put too much into it because I I already kind of felt like that was happening. And and they did watch it. And, and they I liked got what cast they saw. Off the, yeah, I got cast off of that tape and... Uh, and it's been 
awesome ever since. And you've just wrapped the second season? We just wrapped that... the second season. Okay. Yeah, man. We just cleared the strike, thankfully. And so, yeah, it's going to be good. I'm sure it's going to be good. Now, let me let me ask you something, because when a script comes along mm -hmm. and you see the role of Tina, mm -hmm. what's the first thing you do? As soon as you see this role and you go, oh, this, who is this? What is your process? Do you start Analyzing, do you just kind of give over to the character? Do you start channeling the character? How does it work? For you? I, it, it depends. If I get, if, it, if, you know, I'll look at who wrote it. I'll look at who's casting it. I'll look at who's, you know, and usually that that information is on the front page right. of the appointment that you get in your emails. So I'll look at that and I'll see if there's a script, if there's time, if they've given me enough time to actually read the script, which they usually don't. And sometimes you don't even get the script. You just get the so sides. So you just get the sides. And in this situation, I just got the sides. And based on, you know, oh, I saw it was in a, it's a place in the kitchen. Oh, she's a hard ass. Can I say hard ass? You can ass? say anything okay. you want. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't make out if the person I was doing the scene with was male, female. Or I just knew I had to um, do I pulled out a pack of Goya powder. <laughs> and I still to this day, because, uh, you know, the the character of Sydney, played by Io Itabiri, is, um, I didn't know if that was a fee. I didn't know. I just knew I was giving her a hard-ass time. And she's trying to ask me what this recipe is. And I'm like, I can't tell you. It's a secret. It's the system. It's the system. System, baby. And then she walks away frustrated, and I pull out a pack of Goya for the tape, and I system, and that was <laughs> that was it. And I was like, "This is either ridiculous or maybe I don't know. I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't put too much importance because I've learned over three decades of doing this. You can't. You gotta let it go. Yes. And I let it go. But and then they came back. <laughs> but the thing is, you tried something. You yeah. you know you took a chance. Yeah. That could have not worked, but it did. Yeah. Okay. I really didn't have much context. All I had was what was in the, you know, the the, the stage directions, or um, and and that was it. And a couple of pages. Now you didn't go to a acting conservatory. You? Um, how did you learn? How did you? Riffraff, right huh? here. Riffraff, right here. Uh, um, I went to Albany State, and uh, I went there to study business and accounting, at that point, and then I ended up my my. My dream was to be an actor. Since I was a child, I can't explain why. Maybe it has to, something to do with being the youngest and needing to grab more attention. But I always wanted that. I never really got the, you know, we're from the South Bronx projects. A lot was going on. There was no one to really kind of point me in the direction. Right. And so um, finally, when I when I went to school, my boyfriend at the time was like, you got to do something that'll help you make a living because no one wants to see a short chubby Latina. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. And I have been doing everything in to spite him ever since. <laughs> and that that's that's how I, I ended up changing my major to theater while I was there. Me and Stephen Adley Girgis, the Pulitzer Prize playwright, became buddies. We're in the same class. And somehow, with our journeys crossing over several decades, we've worked together, and it's gotten me a tent, some recognition. And yeah, you know, well, I, I would I, say incredible recognition because let's talk about that between Riverside and Crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Stephen Adley Gerges. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were in the same class in college. Oh, yeah. We know each other. I didn't know that. Time. Well, you did. You originated uh, the role in the original production off-Broadway in 2014, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was done again in 2015. Mm-hmm. Then you leap all these years mm-hmm to 2023, mm-hmm. and you recreate the role on Broadway. Mm-hmm. How did that role change over all those years? Because you, you, you were there in that nascent stage when you were figuring out the play, and then you had this gestation period of, how, what, eight, ten years? Yes. Yeah, before you do it again. Mm-hmm. Did it change? It, it, not a single word has changed. Okay. The play has, Did you change? I changed. And yeah. I feel like I had more confidence um, in some some choices. Um, and uh, hopefully it deepens. Uh-huh. Hopefully you we can find a way, or I found a way, to uh, delve deeper into this character's humanity uh-huh. and desperation of her circumstances. But, you know, and still balance the... The con woman, and and I think it, I, I think it got better. Yeah. Um, the trust with me and Stephen McKinley Henderson, who, you know, himself was na- um, nominated for an uh, best actor, Tony. It's only, I just love him, and the trust is deeper. Our shorthand is deeper. But let's talk about that. So you did you did it off Broadway twice, and then on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And when you say the character deepened, do you mean you just find new dimensions to the character, or deeper emotions? You know, for a non-actor, what does that mean? If if somebody's well, you know, mm-hmm. there's the 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 thing about Stephen Girgis's plays are they he is inspired by the people we ride the subway with, right? And and they're not often the people who are gracing the covers of you know magazines. They're they're the disenfranchised. They're the forgotten. They're the invisible. And and he'll write them in a way that it's really easy for someone who isn't um, judging and dismissive to make them cartoonish, to make them unlikable, um, uh, to just play whatever you think the joke is. And and his writing is the opposite. Mm. The more you play the truth and specificity, then it's funny. Right. Then it then it reaches you know then it becomes uh, universal. And so, um, having had that relationship with him, I know that audiences are going to have every reason to not like my character. Mm-hmm. And like all the characters I play in this <laughs> You're a pretty tough cookie. <laughs> you play a pretty t- but they're very tough. flawed, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they have That's they're, good. they're flawed and 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 so I try not to judge characters. Mm-hmm. You gotta give me something to work with. And he certainly does. And to find what forces a person to do ugly things. The why. Try, the, the why, why behind. The why yeah behind exactly and and so um if we if we're vulnerable enough and uh and we and you know i just i would just say if you're vulnerable enough and you do the research and you try to personally put yourself in that person's shoes then hopefully 
the world will have a a better understanding and not instantly dismiss or not instantly expect to be um, entertained and hopefully go to the bar after the show and argue about it. Right. And that's the kind of theater I'm attracted to. Do you to. carry your character with you or can you shake it off afterwards? Does it take you a little while? Or? Well, if you ask my husband, <laughs> <laughs> I did a six-month run of... Um, of Our Lady of 121st Street. And it was rough. Like, my character was a, you know, a violent, hurt person. And I kind of took it on. And David was like, you need to stop acting like Norca. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting too far with this. (laughs) And so, yeah. You scared him. (laughs) Uh, yeah, a little bit, you know, but that's the relationship. Let me I ask you this, though, because bit. you've worked in film, you've worked on television, mm-hmm. you've worked on stage. What kind of adjustments do you have to make when you go from being on stage in front of a camera? You know, you've got close-ups. Obviously, you, you're you not projecting to the back of the house, mm-hmm. the obvious things. But what mental adjustments or physical adjustments do you make when you shift from the stage to the screen? You know, I started in theater, so yeah. I feel like that's I understand it, and and I'm in control of it. Yes, like the audience is right there. We're in a relationship. I'm in a relationship with this character, and I feel like that dynamic we have control over, and I can pivot accordingly because every night is different. Sure. And so, but with TV and film, I I still feel like it's this mysterious like black hole that I don't really understand but you're still depending on the same skills Mm -hmm. the same acting 101 it's about you know doing your research and 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 connecting with the person opposite you right so physically yeah you know I just as opposed to making more deliberate choices in the moment even in theater you still they have to be in the moment um, th- there's nothing worse than watching somebody who's like clearly manufacturing the same thing they've been doing. So if it's alive in you and you're you're uh, you have an awareness, then it's it's exciting because you get from start to finish. Sure. As opposed to with TV or film, I gotta wait a year to see what I did because I don't know I don't know how it's gonna be edited and changed and so I find that with TV and film. Um, depending on how close up it is, these things I'm still learning. Yes. Um, is 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 you just gotta think it. So you gotta it, it's double the work to be so in there in your imagination, in your world, but still open up open enough to whoever you're acting opposite and hitting your marks. Cause I tend to just roll with it. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Um so, but you just said something about double the work and, and getting mm-hmm. the thought process because mm-hmm. there's an old school, very famous theater, I mean, a film director, George Stevens. Mm-hmm. He, the big movie was Giant, but he, he directed many. And he would tell his actors yeah, to speak true. softly, think loud. And I think that's really the difference because mm-hmm. every thought that registers mm-hmm. in those eyes of yours that camera's going to record, mm-hmm. and that camera's recording your thought energy, not mm-hmm. just your dialogue. Every thought that goes through your brain mm-hmm. is going to be on that 
mm-hmm. on that film. Mm-hmm. And that is supreme concentration because there's not a moment. The moment you pull out of the scene or you think about something else, you've broken that spell. Absolutely. Um, because I had to think. It, it, we're having a conversation. I'm looking down. I'm looking around. I'm trying to get my thoughts together. Um, and on the screen, I can't do that. Yeah. I got to do it while I'm looking at you. Uh-huh. Otherwise, like my eyes are like pew, 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 like on screen <laughs> and everything's. But so it, it takes a different kind of muscle that I need to get comfortable with. Right. And just and, and trust that I've done the work. Right. And trust that I, be, I deserve to be in the room. Yeah. You know, because that's as as a as as a woman of a certain age and a woman of color and right. someone who's that message of 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 having earned what you have right is not an easy one to put on and walk into the room with but you've more than made your 10,000 hours you've put in <laughs> you've put in your time i think that's where people who don't know the business mm-hmm. click on the bear and go oh well look that she popped up on a TV show. Wasn't that nice? And you go, you don't know how many workshops, rejections, auditions, plays you've done in the three decades you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of work to be a, become an overnight success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about uh, Sista Supreme. <clears throat> Tell us about that because that, uh, I didn't know about Sista Supreme until I started doing some research on you. And I went back and said, how did she break into this business? How did she get a foothold in this business three decades ago or whatever? Talk about Sister Supreme. Okay. So Sister Supreme happened. um, I belong to a theater company, Labyrinth Theater Company, New York City. And uh, at that point, this was during the first year, we would just meet once a week and and do readings and, and exercises and all kinds of bonding exercise. And, you know, basically it was... Uh, an actor's gym for uh, primarily Latino actors, and then we diversified because that's New York City. Right. And so uh, there was this one week where uh, Paul Calderon, great theater actor and TV actor, Bosch, Q&A, goes back. He would run, and he would run these meetings, and he gave us a writing exercise. It was like an embarrassing moment. It was only meant to be one page. So I wrote about... (laughs) the time when I was 16 and I try to bleach my hair, my eyebrows. <laughs> okay. Cause I was trying to not go a good idea. Not a, it was terrible. But the worst part is not only was it terrible, I thought it looked good. <laughs> and so I wrote that down, but then they were like, okay, so write more about that. But then as I started to excavate why and all the things, self-esteem, white supremacy, all of the things that were working on me, um, it, it, it eventually, over time, led to from a one-page, uh, you know, experiment to um, a 90-minute, 13 different character show. And it focused on uh, the character, this child, um, Nana, and her mom, and uh, her single mom of five children, and, and their visits and the aftermath of of her dating and marrying a convict who was, I didn't know this at the time, and I don't think mom did either, um, 
had a reputation for having killed many people. Ooh, okay. And, you know, there's that person who's in prison yep. and very sweet and loving and sending a lot of romantic letters every day. And then the person who came out. Yeah. And so it follows that story. And, and still, how do you hold on to what you dream about and, and your worth? Mm. So it's really funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you can make anything. <laughs> I really you. believe you can. Um, I have to point this out because it struck me. You're married to David Zayas. Mm -hmm. You and your husband were both on Broadway the same season and both performing in Pulitzer Prize winning plays. I find that incredible. Now, what are the odds this young girl from the Bronx ends up in a Pulitzer Prize winning play on Broadway while her husband's in a Pulitzer Prize winning play on Broadway. That's that is pretty damn cool. It's I it I think it's unheard of. Anybody out there, please, you know, <laughs> fact check. But two Bronx Puerto Ricans who didn't study conservatory were not singing and dancing in West Side Story. <laughs> okay. We're both in <laughs> you know, straight plays. And each of those plays got nominated for Tonys. Isn't that great? I think is in the same season is pretty amazing. It's beyond amazing. It's beyond amazing. I also, uh, in digging around, I, saw, I found this New York Times article recently with you where it says, um, Liza Colonzea swears by Brene Brown. <laughs> and uh, you talk about her book, Atlas of the Heart. Mm -hmm. I'm a Brene Brown fan. So, and you were talking about it's a constant in your life. Mm -hmm. Why? I was listening to her today. <laughs> in fact, um, it doesn't matter where I stop, where I start, it, where whenever I need to just put it on, it's what I need. And today was um, was about defining love and 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 heartbreak. Mm. And I just find that she always grounds me when I'm when my anxiety and and um, and imposter syndrome is at a ten. Mm -hmm. She somehow manages to say something, and I can't quote you exactly what it is, but she always manages to help me bring it down a notch, and um, and I'm, be a little kinder to myself and other people. I want to talk about that because mm -hmm. what I pulled from the article is imposter syndrome. And it's interesting how many successful people, including myself for a number of years, that imposter syndrome is absolutely real. And you feel like, oh, the only reason I got here is because I fooled all these people. Mm -hmm. I'm not really talented. Mm -hmm. I'm not smart. I don't know what I'm doing. And of course, it's all BS. And how do you strip away that imposter syndrome? Because I, you know, it's such a heavy cloak to wear. You know, how do you get that cloak off your back? I don't know. Um, I will just say that constantly um, breathing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just take a moment to breathe and, and, and allow ourselves the permission to check in and see, like, is the thing I'm freaking out about real? Ah, uh, yeah. And if not, 
it, it, where, what is it? You know, for me, it's perfectionism. Uh-huh. I will, I will avoid the real work, and and obsess over stupid things. Like yesterday, I, w- I was um, I was supposed to do this. Um, well, it's actually tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> but I I mixed up the days, and I and I was supposed to um, do this uh, Wall Street Journal photo shoot of of me cooking some, you know, Puerto Rican dishes and. The silver lining is that I got ahead of it, and now I got most of the work out of the way. But I was freaking out all morning about how perfect my apartment looked. And there's dust over here, and this, and this, and I, and I have to get camera ready. And I gotta <laughs> get the thing going. And the oh, David's robe is still in the back, like the most insane. <laughs> and then I'm waiting, and then it's like thirty minutes, and I'm like, oh my god, they're not here yet, and I'm. And it was the wrong day. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and I was, meanwhile, but it was like, it gave me a moment to like, exhale. And look at, look at what I accomplished. And look at the things that I was torturing myself and my poor husband over. Yeah. And so, again, that led me back to Brene Brown to just, you know, it's, I've earned I, you know, I, I'm saying this to myself, not to the world. I've earned the right to have Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. interview me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to hide the fear behind whether I have the right flowers on the table or all of the other superficial things. And is what I'm if it, it, is what I'm freaking out about like superficial, or is it that I actually didn't do the the work? Know the difference. Mm. Give yourself permission to just. You kind of brush by this. Born in the Bronx, there's a certain pride yeah. that comes from, I was raised in the Bronx. Yeah, man. And a certain toughness that is just bred into you when you're from the Bronx. And you said you were the youngest mm-hmm. of how many? Of five. Of five. Of, um, and then I had... Uh, uh, a younger brother and sister who have, um, from a, my dad's second marriage who okay. passed. Any of those folks on either side of the family in show business? Any actors? No, no. What, what happened was my mom and dad got married really young. My mom was 15. She was all gorgeous. And my dad was taking pictures of her in Times Square and, and an, I don't know, a talent agent saw her and said, we're casting a musical, do you sing and dance? And she was like, well, I'm self-taught, which she was my mom, beautiful voice, and she could sing. And he wanted her to audition for West Side Story. Oh, my gosh. And so, but she was underage. He had to go and ask my grandparents, and they said, no, because acting is for hookers. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, that old old thing, yes. But somehow my mom has been my biggest cheerleader through okay. all of this. Um, and so, you know, we ended up born and raised in the Bronx. I was, you know, growing up in the Bronx when it was on fire all day, every day. And I, we live in the Bronx. We moved out. You know, anyway, went our separate lot, you know, grew up, went to college, da-da-da. And now we are, we're 
back in the part of the Bronx that I used to fantasize about, okay, which is Riverdale. But I will always have, I don't know, there's something about Bronx that's in your blood. I think there's something, because when I talk to David, your mm -hmm. husband, about him being a cop on the street and you growing up in the Bronx, mm -hmm. there's something about a street sense or mm -hmm. reading people. Mm -hmm. it's fine-tuned. Mm -hmm. And so I see you coming down the street. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read your body language. Mm -hmm. I'm going to check you out. I'm going to look at your shoes. I'm going to see what you... And I think there's something that's inherently actorly in that. Because while we're talking, mm -hmm. i got to be fully engaged with you. I have mm -hmm. to lock eyes with you. I have to notice what you're doing mm -hmm. with your hands. And you do that on an everyday basis in mm -hmm. the Bronx when you're walking down those streets that are burning, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, listen, I it wasn't like I was 24-7, you know, witnessing atrocities. Oh, no, of course that. not. But, you know, there was, I grew up in the projects. Back then, the projects were the best place to be. You called, you know, uh, Mrs. Annie or Mr. Brown, you know, there was a pre-crack era. Yes. It was a different place. And so I had that experience. It was actually, you know, anyway. Um and so, but I was, I was tiny. I mean, I was like a toddler size in the fourth grade. So I would get picked up, picked on a lot. And my brothers were so sick of me coming home crying. They were like, we're going to teach you how to box. So I, <laughs> so I, I learned at my size, if somebody came at me, the first thing you do is you punch them in the face and you learn how to trip them. You push them backward and you just go in. And that was it. Like, and we moved a lot, so I, you know, you had to make a statement early on. I'm not going to piss I'm you still off doing this that. <laughs> thing, I'm still like, I still like, oh, I get triggered. But yeah, it's like I've, you know, I've had to travel for work a lot. And what I learned is like, you, you know, the map, you know, the money, and you read people. Yeah. And you, I, I'm sorry, I can't walk the streets so all like, eh. no, I walk like, what the fuck. You can say anything. <laughs> and I think that's what, you know, that, that's been carried over into my character on The Bear, Tina. I've never worked on a line in a restaurant. I've worked in restaurants. I worked front of the house. I worked the counter. Uh, during college, I was on the dish line, miserable. Um, but I walked into a pizza shop one day, and I saw this little tiny... Latina, I think South American, and all the men were afraid of her. Mm -hmm. And when she came out, they were, <laughs> she'd stomp in and out, and I was just watching her eating, eating my pizza, and I'm like, I think that's Tina, I think that's her. And then I eventually, this, for the second season, they did send me for some cool culinary training um, so I could, I could fillet a Branzino. But, yeah, I, I know. I'll, That's I'll important. Know. That's important. I remember I was on a, a, a terrible soap opera, and I was a terrible actor. But uh, uh, one of the actors was married to a nurse. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be in the room while they were watching an episode of the TV show. And she sat there and she said, real nurse, real nurse, actor. And I said, how, how can you tell the difference? Because it was some show where there was surgery going on. She says, because the real nurses are matter of fact with scalpels and stitching and, and the actors are making a big deal. <laughs> so filleting a Branzino, if you've taken a culinary class, I'm sure it's, it's almost like muscle memory and you have a certain method there that 
you know, it's not it's not that he's like my first day of culinary school with um with uh David Waltuck, who um he founded Chanterelle, which is a big deal in the two thousands. Like my first time working with real knives. I, my hands were covered. If I show you the picture, my hands are covered in Band-Aids because I couldn't feel when I was cutting myself because the knives were so sharp. Ooh. And and David was like, yeah, it'd be great. You didn't get blood in the potatoes. <laughs> Killed a lot of potatoes. <laughs> but but the, the biggest, the, the biggest compliments to me, for me, come from the people who actually work in kitchens. And... And this was, you know, they're they're going based off of season one where I had no culinary training yet. And yet, but they recognized um, an energy mm-hmm. that they're like, oh, that's my mom. And she had her restaurant or this is I know this person. And and they they always refer to the authenticity mm-hmm. and the vibe. And uh, oh, you're my, you're my aunt or you're you're this. And so that, I feel like. Well, after the first season, Angelina, my wife, would be, and I'd be in the kitchen. I'd go, chef, coming through. Chef. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, shut up. <laughs> shut up. You're not a chef. Shut up. You know, and I'm sure that there are a lot of chefs out there who are, like, really annoyed with that. But what are you going to do? Let me ask you this about when you're creating. Is there a, a spiritual aspect to what you do as an artist? And by that, I'm not talking about organized religion or dogma. I'm talking about, is there any part of this that starts to feel spiritual? The reason I bring it up is, I think it was Eva Legallian or Durst or Sarah Bernhardt, one of those big, magnificent actors of the stage said their church was the theater. When they went in there, they felt like they were of service to something higher, mm-hmm. you know? Do, mm-hmm. Does that ever strike Absolutely. you? I, I'm not a religious person, but I light my candles. I try to connect to whoever, if there's somebody out there listening, to the ancestors, for, not just to, for, to perform. Right. But for anything. And, like, we have a tradition in, in lab uh, before we go out. You know, ten at 10 minutes, we get into a circle, and we hold hands, and we summon uh-huh. Because the theater is your church. Yes. And so, yeah, we used to have, we would have a, a little table with an altar. Yeah. Um, with a copy of the script of the play we're doing. Uh-huh. And, and candles and, you know, whatever pers- mementos that are personal to this process. And we would circle around that as well. I think there's something absolutely correct about that because it's thought energy and the thought energy that went into that script that is a tangible thing the thought energy and the physical as well as spiritual energy of the people doing the show and then the intermingling of all that energy becomes part of the ensemble and i find myself sometimes in the theater i'm responding on a level i don't understand because i go I'm responding to something bigger than the story or the words. And I think that's what you're kind of hinting at there. It's about having each other. Yeah, yeah, connection, connection. We're here to be of service to the playwright, and there is no one more important than the person you're talking to. Right. So as long as that remains alive, then the audience is affected. You have no control of what they're supposed to walk away with. 
Right. And I don't want to do anything that's tied up in a bow and gives you, sorry, gives you resolution. Yeah. That's fascinating. Let me ask you this. Um, youngster comes to New York, didn't grow up in the Bronx. They grew up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And they're knocking around the streets and say, I want to break into this business. Liza, tell me what to do. How would you guide someone? What would you say to an aspire, whether it's a writer, dancer, actor, singer, composer, what advice would you give that young artist? What kind of artist do you want to be? There you go. Prepare. I don't think you have to go into debt to be an effective artist, unless you want to teach. Uh-huh. Um, and listen, technique, training, specifically, if you want to do more classical work, absolutely, it's important to be as meticulous as possible. But you are you. You know, I feel like too often uh, who you are gets trained out of you. Mm. And... And that's the thing you have to fall in love with, your quirks, what's weird about you. If that gets trained out of you, I'm sorry. The very thing that makes you valuable, that stands out in the room, that gives you confidence in any room is compromised. And so, and then you have to work three day jobs to try to pay back your loans. You're gonna you're gonna spend all that money, uh, you know, get, Get some tech training or something so that you're not waiting tables. And as soon as you graduate, you can start, you know, pay, you can pay your rent and everything else. You know, try to go to reputable, smaller classes. Learn the craft. You can prepare a lot more than we could have. You have your, you, you got the internet. Mm-hmm. Learn, prepare, read. Watch all the great filmmakers. You can always prepare. There's so many master class classes online right. that aren't even mass. You know, it's not like you got to sign up. They're there for free. But trust who you are. Love who you are. If you're not a model, you're not a model. <laughs> Forget that. Right. Hone who you are. Yeah, that's good. Hone who you are. And never, <clears throat> never compare your journey. There. So there are going to be people who are considered within the same type and their journey it may skyrocket right away and then you feel like shit and it's going to trigger all the worst parts of your... They may come crashing down. They may say, your journey is going to be completely different. Let that go. Yeah, because if you want to be miserable, just compete and compare yourself to others mm-hmm. as opposed to own who you are. And that's what you're saying. Own this who, is who you I... are because success is not going to fix that. Exactly. You know, yes. We've unfortunately lost very successful people. Yes. That it didn't heal them. So. Right. Right. Okay. Well, this podcast is called Glimpses. My book is called Glimpses. And when I mention glimpses, it's um, finding little glimpses of God throughout the day. And however you define God, moments of kindness, compassion, unexpected moments of grace. Do you find glimpses in your life? Oh, yeah. Every day. Because because of the imposter syndrome. And then ah. somebody steps in and is and, and 
to something. I got DJ. Uh-huh. My son DJ is the epitome of that. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, DJ is our son. He's in the room. He's turning a little red right now. But he is the kindest, he is a sweet most heart. giving, uh, just generous, curious, talented. And I'm like, wow, you can do this and not be miserable. <laughs> be a happy person. Wait, I'm going to write that down. You can do this and not be miserable. Every, I think every actor should have that tattooed on their butt. <laughs> you can do this and not be miserable. Well, I could talk to you for days, but I'm going to wrap it up and just say thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I am in awe of your talent, and you deserve all the success that is raining down upon you right now. Mm -hmm. It's well-deserved. And thank you. thank you for being here. Thank you so, so much, Matt. And Angelina, your wife, Angelina, is a godsend. And she's also in that same category as I put DJ. Uh, Just generous and open and, and joyful and yep. talented. So thank her for me. Well, that's it for this episode of Glimpses. As you go about your day, I encourage you all to uh, take a moment and stop and look around and see if you can catch a glimpse. Thanks. <laughs>